Property Headlines. Here are the couple of the major stories out this week. UAE consumers spent 278 billion dirhams on housing in 2016. The latest data from Euromonitor International reveals that total accommodation spend was twice the projected cost of uh, Business Bay's 200 towers. The total amount includes housing maintenance, repair and utility costs and adds up to be nearly half of consumers' total expenditures for the year. New research from HSBCs revealed that 82% of people in the country who don't own their own home expect to do so in five years. That's despite a complex market environment and low salary growth. And it's beyond the BRICS report. The barriers to home ownership include the need for a higher salary and saving more for a deposit. Among the significant barriers highlighted were the need for a higher salary, 62%. The deposit was 42%. Of homeowners who'd purchased property recently, nearly 7 in 10 spend, uh, spent more than they had initially budgeted. Now, the most common reasons for the overspend is uh, things like broker fees. Around about 60% of people cited that. Legal fees around about the same level. Renovation costs, uh, with the bank claiming all these instances could be avoided with a well-structured financial plan. And residential real estate prices in Dubai saw a marginal drop in February as compared with the previous month. That's according to Value Strat Price Index. It's a comprehensive weighted sample of residential property types across the city. Value Strat Research Manager Haider Twema says that uh, although capital values have fallen slightly in some prime locations, he expects mid-market areas to drive a soft recovery in the overall residential market. Understanding Property on Drive Live. Ludmilla Yamala is here. She's a managing partner of HBL Yamala and Plethkit Legal Consultants. Nice to see you back in. Good to be here. How are you? You're doing well? So far, so good. Thank you. First of all, do you agree with this whole finding, um, what makes you happiest in life? It is just down to relationships? Uh, absolutely. Yeah? Yes. 100%. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll get uh, your thoughts on that as we go through. But let's just start off with um, this story here, Ludmilla. I think it's uh, quite important. This It's not only Dubai property can now be included in a DIFC will. This DIFC will, if we can just uh, set this up, it was set up um, nearly two years ago in May 2015 for non-Muslims with assets in Dubai to have the freedom to decide what happens to their assets after their death. Now, non-Muslims can include property not just in Dubai, but in Ras al-Khaimah as well. Is that right? Correct, and okay. this is and this is quite um, um, quite significant because uh, there are a lot of foreigners here that that do actually own properties in Ras Al Khaimah and and Dubai, and until recently, uh, at least uh, until this amendment, they could not include their Ras Al Khaimah properties into the Dubai will unless those properties, for example, were owned by uh, a Dubai company. And in fact, we we have seen a, a trend uh, in connection with that. In other words, those who own properties in Iraq, for example, in their per- personal capacity, in order to in, to include their properties into the DFC will, they restructure the ownership of those properties in Iraq into a name of a company, uh, a, a Dubai company, and thereby included their assets through a Dubai company to the DFC will, which is a lot, a lot more expensive and a lot more complicated. And, and with this introduction of an amendment, it's now it's unnecessary, but it certainly is um, a very welcome change. And I wouldn't be surprised if we continue the DFC wills and probate registry continues to include more emirates as the time goes on. Uh, you were surprised by this statistic today, Tim. More than 2,000 UAE residents have already registered. I know. I was sat doing the maths earlier yeah. on, Ludmiller. I mean, the, the fact that we can do this now, register wills at the IFC, 2,100 UAE residents have already done that. It costs, what, 20,000 dirhams or so to do that? Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not cheap, and it depends on whether you want to do a single will or mirror wills, and if you want to include a guardianship provision into the will or not. And these are just the DIFC wills and probate uh, 
fees or costs. And then obviously there's the legal counsel. If you want to hire a lawyer to draft um, the will for you, you have to consider those costs as well. So mm-hmm. in we actually hear a lot of comments regarding the costs on both fronts, on the fronts of fees, i.e. the fees to the DIFC Wills and Probate Registry and the fees to lawyers as being uh, is a, more than people are willing to pay. And, uh, and, and obviously this is a, a reasonable conclusion for, for many, but just as if I may remind, we're talking about a one's w- uh, life's work mm-hmm. or, and this is, the, you're talking about all of your assets that you've accumulated or earned over the course of your life and you're trying to set up a system or a structure for your heirs to uh, to benefit uh, from your life's work uh, vis-a-vis this, um, this, this will. So I know it costs, it, it sounds like a lot of money, but if you think, look at it from that perspective, it is, um, you know, it probably is, is reasonable and actually makes sense, especially since uh, we are in a foreign country, and, and if you do not have a DFC, will the default default rule that will apply is Sharia, and under Sharia, obviously, it's it's a different disposition of um, of your estate, and also it's it's uh, the court is in Arabic, and so there's a little bit more, especially if you're talking about heirs who have to now to deal with the disposition of one's estate of, of a loved one after having lost a lo- uh, loved person, uh, going through a local court to, in Arabic and having to go through Sharia. It's just maybe a little more challenging and um, potentially in, in already traumatic time. Mm. So the DFC will, will um, and probate registry was introduced with that in mind. And it certainly is a very convenient tool, though there is definitely a cost to it. Understanding property on Drive Live. Ludmilla Yamalava is here to help you out. Ludmilla, I suppose we'll just jump straight into the text line here and start with Max's question. We were briefly talking about it. If you missed the the top news this week, the DIFC Wills and Probate Registry has just extended the uh, properties that they will actually um, cover. They used to only cover properties here in Dubai, if you own property here in Dubai. Now they will also cover property in Ras al-Khaimah. Talking of wills, Max writes in for you and says, Ludmilla, I'm a Muslim expat in the UAE. I own multiple properties. Do I even need a will? No. In fact, as a Muslim expat, you cannot um, have a will in the DFC. um, Sharia law will apply. Okay, so no need for a will. So no need to, for a will at all. Not well, even uh, we know DIFC no because that's for non-Muslims, but anyway, just generally. Uh, well, n- correct. And on top of that, under Sharia law, actually, one can have a will uh, and will about one third of their estate, but it has to be to non-heir. So um, the general, the default rule is there is uh, you don't need to have a will, um, and Sharia law will apply. But if you do want to have a will, you can only will one third of your estate, and it has to be to a non-heir. Mm plenty of texts in uh, 4001 the free app you can text in on uh, let's go to Abdul's text for you Ludmilla who's in charge of Ijari registration and uh, payment the tenant or the landlord uh, well the law is not very specific on that uh, it's uh, but it it makes a reference, in fact, that at least if it's a reasonable to interpret that it, the, the responsibility of the payment is on the tenant. But I'll tell you from a practical standpoint, it should be, it, it's in the interest of the tenant to actually have the contracts registered in the jury because they will, it will all usually be the tenant who will need that contract, for example, to register with DIWA, with just a cooling, uh, and even for to, to renew their visa or to apply for a visa, they need to show that they have a, a, a contract that's registered with the jury. So it's really in 
the interest of of the tenant to have the contract registered. So from a practical standpoint, it should be the responsibility should be on the tenant, uh, the responsibility and the cost. But it's always parties always free to agree otherwise. So whenever you do negotiate a contract or you sign a lease agreement, do mention that who is responsible for the payment and who should actually go and register it. But make sure that whoever does it, that the the agreement is actually registered with the jury and then both parties have a copy of it. Rian writes in at also talking about registering a will at the DIFC and says it is not reasonable talking about the the price how much this costs he says it's not reasonable it's ridiculous not everyone in this country lives in a certain area which is known to be quite expensive here but you were just talking to us there off air that you think it is actually reasonable because it's going to cost you more money if you don't have one in the long run. Is that right? Correct. Well, it's all relative. I mean, first of all, let, let me just kind of break it down. So um, estate, one's estate has, in general terms, two parts to it. One is um, real estate, and so that's immovable property. And then the other one is all the sort of the move, non-real estate-related bank accounts, cars, vehicles, and so on and so forth. So with regards to the inheritance, uh, the under the UAE law, all the movable assets can be subject to the law of the uh, of the country of the deceased or the citizenship of the deceased and that but move but immovable property i.e. real estate is subject to sharia so there alone so let's say if you have assets if you only have bank accounts and you don't have properties like well Rian said uh, so if you don't have a property then you don't need to have a will you can you can basically just rely on the dis- uh, on the disposition of your estate vis-a-vis a local court and apply the law of the country um, from where you're from. Uh, but if you have p- uh, property, real property, then it's a lot more complicated because your, your assets or your estate will be divided into two. Um, so that's one. Two, but even to show for if you wanted to apply the law of your country, you have to understand that let's say you're taking, your heirs are taking uh, or trying to, um, to dispose or to administer your estate before the local courts. And so now they have to bring to the court uh, the law of your country to show to the court how that, how those assets should be disposed of or distributed. So they they will have to prove to the court that let's say you come from France and you know what the law in France is because you would want the local courts to apply the law in France. So it's so if if you actually add up the the cost and the time factor and the um, the resources that will be required to prove that evidence, um, then ultimately it'd be a lot more expensive than if you actually have a very clearly structured document that that sets out how your estate should be disposed of. Uh, because then you're not you, you're going to have to you will save your heirs the the trouble and the time and the, the hassle factor in trying to convince the courts you know, what the will of the mm. uh, the testator might have been. Uh, to, what's the entry level price for a DIFC will? Well, again, it depends on what they're doing. Uh, if you're doing a single will, double or mutual or a mutual will, um, or and if you're including the um, uh, the guardianship provision, but generally it's about ten thousand dirhams. Okay. Understanding property on Drive Live. Ludmilla Yamalava is here. She's from HBL Yamalava and Plethka Legal Consultants to answer your legal property questions. So if you have anything on renting, selling, buying, anything else that comes to mind about property here in the UAE. Before we go to the text line, we've had a call come in from Moen. Yeah, here you go. Status of homeowner associations is uh, the basis of this, Ludmilla. Whether RERA is registering homeowners associations, and if they are, where do you do it, how do you do it, the ins and outs, I think. 
In short, no, RIA is not yet giving permanent registration or legal registration to homeowner associations. Uh, they keep track of the various buildings that are being handed over and what's called interim associations. But in terms of licensing the associations to be legal entities, they do not yet do that. Uh, how soon we can expect them to do it, we do not know. We, it's yeah, it's that I don't have the answer. I know they've been talking about it for a few years now, but we're still. Uh, not there. How do you set up an interim association? Interim, to be honest with you, it's more of a it's it's more of a, a term of art. An interim association, every building ultimately is um, will have an owners an owners association by virtue of different people owning property uh, properties in that building. So to set up an uh, interim association, you'll just have a, usually it's done between the developer and uh, sometimes at least in the past it used to be done by a representative uh, from RERA, and so they will. Um, they will ask the owners, the owners to elect a board, or for uh, for owners to run to be on the board, and they'll elect the board of X number of people, and you know, that group of people basically become the the so-called um, the voice of the of the other owners. Uh, and uh, at least in, in, in theory, they, they can make decisions on behalf of the association and on behalf of the, of the, of the project or the, the development. Uh, however, in practice, they need a sign-off from the developer and from RIA to do anything. And because this group of people, the board, for example, and, and the interim association, it's called interim because it doesn't have a legal status. And mm. because it doesn't have a legal status, it cannot, for example, it doesn't have the authority or the ability to do anything on behalf of the association. That is, for example, if they wanted to take insurance, if the own homeowner association wanted to take insurance for the project, to, to sign an insurance contract, you need somebody has to sign it. So who would it be? You cannot just sign the board. It has to be a legal entity. So since homeowner association does not have the legal uh, entity status, it cannot sign that contract. So it would have to be, and usually in practice it is, for example, the developer or the management company that's hired, again, in you know, in theory, by the homeowner association. Similarly, it, let's go back to the management company. Who can hire the management company for that association or for the building? Well, in theory, it will be the association, but as long as the association does not have the legal standing to sign a contract, it has to be somebody other than the this mm. interim association. So usually, so they have some say, but they don't actually have the legal right to sign off on something. Well, they have a say if if the developers allow them to have yeah. a say, or and and there are, there are some interim associations that effectively actually run buildings and run uh, properties and they're very successful and they're very effective but there are some where the the developers continue to follow its purposes to run and manage and the the interim association is more you know a more of a sort of a concept uh, than an effective tool okay uh karen writes in and says can i ask for a rent reduction from my landlord as they're digging up all the driveways outside our villa and the traffic is going to be carnage and we have nowhere to park as well so what do you reckon Karen I mean absolutely you can always ask and under the circumstances it's it's reasonable to argue that some sort of reduction uh, should be due but it's really up to the owner to agree or disagree and at the end of the day if the owner does not agree and it is a significant inconvenience to you then you could always consider at least uh, br- uh, terminating the lease early on the grounds that your enjoyment of the property is now being is now being uh, affected and to do so you would have to go to RGC uh, in order for them to to give you the okay to terminate the agreement early and to actually get a refund for the remainder of the of the lease and these cases actually are quite reasonable and the arguments do have support in the law 
Majdi's uh, on the text line. I recently rented an apartment. The developer's looking for a 5,000 dirham deposit check for allowing me to move in. Is asking for it, actually. Is this legal? There's nothing mentioned about this in the contract I signed with the landlord via a real estate agent. Well, let me tell you, it is not illegal, uh, but the fact that... So there's nothing in the law that says the developer cannot, does not have the right um, to ask for a deposit. Uh, but it certainly is not contractually supported either. In this case, since the contract that was signed does not mention it, so there isn't really a legal argument for the developer or for to, to demand it. That's uh, that's if we're talking from a legal perspective. But from a practical standpoint, uh, if if the developer is insisting on this payment, and you do not want to pay it, they are they they're likely not to allow you to uh, to move in until you actually pay it. So if it's if it's a matter of principle for you of the five thousand significant, um, then you can just refuse to move in and, you know, you can take the, the case to court, um, if you've already, especially if you've already paid uh, money to the developer for the, for the rent. Um, so court is likely to cost more than the 5,000 euros. Well, exactly. So, yeah, that's why. But that's why I said if it's a matter for some, it's a matter of principle, mm. but it's not, it's something that's not really worth going to, uh, uh, to RDC for. But if you haven't yet paid rent, and this is happening at the outset of your, of your lease, and this is an important issue for you for whatever reason, you certainly can use it as grounds not to proceed. Here's one from Anisha who says, property question, it's not legal related, uh, but perhaps uh, we can get your thoughts on this, Ludmilla. Anisha says, we're looking for a villa in the 3 million dirham range. Is it smarter to look for an existing property uh, or plan or get an off-plan new property just out in the market? Well, the off-plan and new properties are two separate concepts. The mm. off-plan usually refers to properties that are not yet ready. So um, they are not quite existing properties yet. And then there's the new properties that are, um, that are no longer off-plan but have not been lived in yet and they're just being handed over right now. So there's a difference. Uh, with regards to whether you, you want to consider buying either an older older property, a brand new property, or one that's off plan, really it's, it's a personal decision, but some of the factors to look at. Uh, and then also Anisha mentioned in her uh, several texts that um, some of the considerations with an old, uh, older property, there are obviously uh, uh, higher maintenance uh, issues and perhaps um, the bu- buildings are sort of deteriorating. So that's one of the considerations or ag- against um, buying an older property. Well, that's true, but with newer properties, you have a, a sort of a similar argument that is with newer properties, you don't know what kind of issues might come up. And usually what happens is uh, is part of, uh, you know, they're always um, sort of settling or growing pains with newer properties um, in the first year or two, there are all sorts of issues that come up that need to be addressed. So that in of itself should not be a significant factor in deciding newer property against older property. So th- what you want to look at is is uh, because old, older property also have had sort of things, other issues settled. So, for example, if we're talking about facilities, so if you if uh, having a beach access or or um, uh, gym access is important to you, that you would know by now that older property what the status of those facilities are. Often for newer properties, uh, even though. Uh, developers, you know, owners, um, um, agents will tell you that, yes, you can move in and the gym will be open tomorrow or next month. Often what we see is that it takes a lot longer for these
these facilities to open up. So with newer properties, you just need to be mindful that some of the facilities will not necessarily be available when um, when you move in. And same thing with the community. So it really is a personal choice, and um, you know, there are pluses and minus, minuses on both sides. What about off-plan or new properties? What do they offer in terms of building guarantees? Yeah. Off-plan is a separate subject, and uh, it's it's much more difficult to, uh, I'd say it's, it's pretty maybe more challenging in terms of being able, for example, to expect what what you will receive. Because you are, if you are buying a ready property, an older property or, an, uh, or a brand new property, you can go and you inspect it and you know exactly that the size of the property, the layout of the property, and you know what facilities already exist and what the view at least is at that point in time. With off-plan properties, you can't, you, you just basically you're operating on the basis of a plan that's on a piece of paper. And so uh, so the the issue, and we see this quite frequently, is that when the property is actually handed over, then often it doesn't have, you know, I'd say the smaller uh, or it's bigger, and the developer is asking for the increase in the in the in the purchase price, uh, or for example, it doesn't have the same configuration or the layout as you expected, or it doesn't have the kind of the same view that you expected or facilities that again you expected. So. So those are sort of the differences to consider, but often the off-plan properties, I guess the plus side, is that they are more affordable because you don't need to come up with the entire payment up front. It's, it's paid in stages. So if you go with, with a reputable developer and um, you, you do your due diligence um, early on, um, then it, certainly there are plenty of investors out there who have and continue to invest in off-plan properties and, and find it commercially beneficial. Understanding Property on Drive Live. Lots and lots of your questions coming in for Lud Miller, who is here in studio with us. Let's continue with those. Owen writes in. Let's go from there. Owen says, approximately how much is the cost for an owner to get an eviction order, the total cost, for a non-paying tenant? Uh, well, the cost to RDC, or the Rent Dispute Committee, is 5% of the claimed amount. And if you do it yourself, that's basically, that's going to be the cost plus a, a few hundred dirhams for translation of the relevant documents. Okay. Uh, here you go. What's another one? Uh, what happens to the ownership of freehold property after 99 years? Tahir is asking, does it go back to the developer? That's uh, a great question because actually there's a paradox in that very question. So there are two terms, uh, freehold and 99 years. Those are actually separate terms. The, the 99 years, years is referred to a leasehold. So when we're talking about a term, it refers to a le- leasehold, which means there is a beginning and there's an end. When you talk about a freehold, there is no term. Freehold mm-hmm. is forever. So there is a bit of a misunderstanding, uh, misconception about uh, leasehold versus freehold. In Dubai, most of the properties, and the freehold properties we're talking about or the properties we mostly talk about are freehold, which means there is no 99-year term. In Abu Dhabi, however, until recently, most of the properties were always leasehold for 99 years. Uh, so, but but recently, if my memory serves me right, Abu Dhabi started in, introducing also freehold property um, properties. Now, what happens after 99 years? We we have to wait and see. <laughs> we just don't know yet. Okay, it's that simple. Essen is on the line with us now. Essen, what's your question for Ludmilla? Hi, thank you for your call back. Um, my question is: I live in Sharjah, and uh, my uh, tenancy agreement has come to an end uh, last week. And I went to my property manager that I want to cancel my tenancy. I don't want to continue the next three years because it's too busy roads. So he's saying that you have to give two months' notice. And I was like, okay, uh, well, if I haven't given you notice, uh, but you never check back on me as well. So in this case, when my tenancy contract has expired, and uh, what is the repercussion? How can I get uh, get uh, out of this place without being penalized? 
Uh, well, much depends on the contract. So if your lease has a two-month clause, either by way of notification uh, or a penalty, then then you're contractually bound to having to pay that. And, and, and what I mean by that is some leases, for example, will say that if you do not want to renew the lease, you need to let the landlord know two months in advance. And so if you have a clause like that and you did not give them two months, then it would be reasonable for the landlord to ask you for compensation for those two months, or at least for you to stay in the property for the extra two months. Alternatively, some of the leases will say if you, it's called an early termination, um, that if you do not want to stay further or, or a termination penalty, it, you know, for example, it's two-month penalty. Um, so it's because in in... Uh, in the law, there is nothing, either in Dubai and I, uh, and if my memory once again serves me right, in Sharjah, there's nothing in the law that has a mandatory or obligatory uh, termination notice or a penalty. So therefore, it's really uh, up to the parties to agree. So if you didn't agree to it, then legally you have an argument not to pay. But in practice, if you need uh, the landlord uh, to sign off some kind of uh, no objections for you to move out, you may be stuck and, and have to negotiate some, some sort of a compromise. All right, Essen, good luck. Take a look at your contract. Thank All you. right, thanks Thank so you. much for your call. Call in four two three ten ten. Let's go back to the text line. Julie on the text here. My husband and I are separated. We are not divorced. We own an apartment in joint names that is rented to tenants. Firstly, do both our names have to be on the tenancy agreement? Secondly, is there any way I can prevent my husband renting it without my knowledge and receiving the rental income? Perhaps through Ijari noting it should have both owners, uh, both owners on the tenancy agreement. For example. Well, yes, it's an excellent question because for the longest time these questions never came up and 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 both um, owners and renters and agents for that matter uh, would just require but would, would accept document signed with one signature uh, the practice now has has evolved and there is uh, if and if you if, if you are um, it, to do it correctly you need to have signatures of both parties because ultimately you have two different owners so as a tenant if you see that there's a contract that is that the title deed is in the name of, of two or several p- uh, parties you should absolutely get signatures of either both of those parties or those parties uh, legal representatives and make sure those legal representatives are not just somebody that's relying on on the letter from from the owner but in fact it's a power of attorney that is from that owner that gives that legal representative the right to sign agreements on their behalf. So it must only be be done by power of attorney. So legally speaking, each of these documents or leases should be in the name of both and should be signed by both, legally speaking. However, in practice, there is still a lot of um, tenants and and agents and uh, and landlords, for that matter, that do not require and do not sign uh, on behalf of all the owners. But it's not a safe practice for the very reason that Julie just brought up, you know, what if... Um, her husband goes and, and re- rents the property to uh, um, to someone without her knowledge. In in theory, that should not be possible. Or I guess in in, in theory, it should not be practice impossible. In practice, it may happen, and there's nothing really you can do um, other than just be ready that if that does happen, you can you will have a legal cause of action against your um, husband because basically he rented the property that um, that. Um, that you both owned, uh, so he didn't really have the right to bind your share of the property. We have so many questions to answer, so many coming through here, but we only have time for one more. If you don't get your question answered, don't worry, we'll save these questions and we'll answer as many as we can next week on the show at the same time. Here's the last question for you. We've not had this one in before. Our community management agent charges us to allow service providers to enter our apartment. So, for example, cleaners, maintenance people. Is this legal? 
Well, well you, this is always a tricky question to answer. Is this legal? Because I can tell you, if there's something in the law that says this is, it's not legal for somebody to do that, then absolutely, then the answer is easy. It's not legal. There's nothing in the law that I know of that, that has a specific law that would say a property management company does not have the right to charge these fees. So uh, legally, it's, it's, not, it's not prohibited, uh, at least expressly. Now, but it can be, it can be illegal in other ways. Or maybe more, it's a breach of contract, for example, and that is... And if in the contract there is not a provision there um, and that uh, that would give them the right to do so, then you could argue that contractually it's not uh, it's not legal. So, so a little bit gray there. Well, I mean, it's it's yeah, it's a little bit gray. Yes, and unfortunately, yeah, I wish I could be more positive and more confident, but. Yeah. Okay. Um, maybe not the answer you were expecting or wanted to hear. I'm sorry about that. But uh, thank you to Ludmilla, who's been in to answer all of your questions or some of your questions that we could get to today.